My name is Andrew, and welcome to MIR Meets, a podcast where we discuss a wide variety of topics with guests. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Matt Continetti, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a contributing editor at National Review. We discuss Barack Obama, populist conservatism, and conspiracy theories in order to better understand Trump's current influence on the Republican Party. All right, just a heads up before we proceed to our usually scheduled programming. This interview heavily references an episode of The Hangover. For those of you who may not be aware, The Hangover is a podcast miniseries from The Dispatch where the host invites on guests in order to perform an autopsy of the Republican Party in the wake of the 2020 election. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes if you're interested, but without further ado, I present to you my interview with Matt Continetti. Matthew Continetti, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Yes. Um, so I guess I'm going to begin in a bit of an odd spot, but um, you mentioned in your episode of The Hangover that there was an autopsy report in the wake of the 2012 election where like the main conclusion was that Republicans need more votes from minorities and like women and younger voters. And basically one of the conclusions is that it should give amnesty to millions of illegal immigrants and like those sorts of things would help make the Republican party more electorally viable in general elections. But you mentioned that the 2020 election has suggested that the Republican party can draw support from groups not traditionally associated from them. So do you think the GOP is still struggling with reaching out to new voters or is it currently doing fine? Well, I think it depends on how you measure it. Um, First, uh, we need to acknowledge that um, the Republican party has not won a majority of the popular vote um, since 2004. That's when it barely won a majority of the popular vote. Its biggest, uh, it hasn't really won a large victory in the presidential election since 1988. Um, so the Republican party clearly has trouble getting a, um, you know, a substantive majority, a, you know, above 50% of the popular vote in presidential elections. And it's been having that problem for some time. Now, conversely, it's not like the Democrats are winning by landslides either when they win. Um, These elections have been very close. We've been in a stalemate in America, really, since the end of the Cold War, beginning with the 1992 election, and it's continued. Uh, So after the 2012 loss, uh, I think the Republican Party was um, uh, shocked uh, by uh, how uh, quickly the election was called uh, for Barack Obama. And um, the grand days of the party, such as they were, um, decided that the, what the Republican Party really needed to do in order to win in 2016 was to pivot hard, um, especially on the issue of immigration, and get behind Barack Obama's proposed um, amnesty of uh, illegal immigrants in the United States. Well, the, uh, the grandees forgot to check in with the actual Republican voters who, for um, half a decade by that point had been strenuously opposed to any such uh, comprehensive immigration reform. And what happened? Well, uh, 
uh, being opposed to immigration reform did not stop the Republicans from having a great midterm election in 2014, winning both the House and Senate. It didn't stop Donald Trump uh, from winning an electoral college majority uh, quite handily uh, in 2016 and, and bringing unified government uh, under the control of the Republicans. Uh, and it, it didn't prevent um, uh, what you might say is a wipeout in 2020. Um, when you look at the presidential result in 2020, um, Trump came very close to throwing the election to the House of Representatives. And according to the Constitution, um, the House, uh, if this procedure takes place, the House votes by a state delegation, which would have meant, which would have meant Trump had would have a second term if it had gone to the House of Representatives. It was really only 44,000 votes across three states that prevented this outcome from occurring. Um, Republicans picked seats up in the House, which uh, no, no one in the commentariat um, anticipated. And they picked up seats, um, including uh, along border districts and districts with the sizable numbers of Hispanic voters in um, Texas and, and Florida. And Republicans uh, really, I believe, would have controlled the US Senate had not um, the events after the election uh, with Donald Trump perpetuating the myth uh, that he had actually won um, taken, had taken place. And that led to the, the loss of two uh, Senate seats in a runoff election in Georgia in January of this year. Even then, uh, the Republicans are at 50-50. So a lot of Republicans look at this, the, the politics of the last um, eight years, and they say that, you know, we can do pretty well uh, without embracing large-scale compre uh, comprehensive immigration reform. We can do pretty well by being a socially conservative and culturally conservative party. The question that lies before them is, can they do enough? Uh, can, they, can, they, can they really use this base as a way to um, jump into you know the fifty one percent threshold, which you which you need to to have a um, a sound uh, electoral majority, and that's something that they uh, they haven't quite figured out. Yeah, so I guess I guess since the president's up in the air, I'm going to you mentioned how like the Republicans won in the twenty fourteen midterms. Um, and in your guest appearance in The Hangover, you talked about like how in the aftermath, Obama did something you really didn't like, which was that he mentioned that he was only going to listen to the people that either voted for him or didn't vote. So I guess, <laughs> yeah, so I guess that brings up an important question, which is that like throughout the throughout his administration, to what, to what extent do you think um, his position on like willingness to compromise changed? Well, I'm not sure he ever actually was willing to compromise. Uh, that's, um, uh, that's a point that many Democrats would disagree with me on, I'm sure. Um, so just take a step back and think about Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama was uh, heralded um, in much the same way that Joe Biden is being um, lionized by the media today. He was called the second coming of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was described as a transformational president. He would usher in a post-partisan, post-racial era in the United States. Uh, a lot of this um, came from Obama's unique biography. It came from the stirring uh, speech he delivered to the 2004 Democratic Convention 
really the only thing that were, will ever be remembered uh, from that convention was Obama's address where he said there is no red America, there's no blue America, there's just the United States of America. So um, Obama was viewed as this um, once in a generation political talent, which I think he is in many ways, uh, but also kind of a once in a generation opportunity for progressivism to really change the country. In fact, a few days before the election in 2008, he said, we're just a few days from fundamentally transforming uh, the United States of America. And he talked a lot about building a new foundation for America. That was the kind of the theme of one of his major domestic addresses early on in his, in his term. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, it ended up that Obama midwifed um, the politics of national populism that has been disrupting the United States um, really since 2010. Um, even the summer of 2009, you can say, with the beginning of the Tea Party rallies. Um, and his response, I think, um, was uh, slightly perverse, which is that Obama saw the um, populism of the GOP as a political opportunity. He thought that it, the more crazy he could make the Republican Party seem to middle of the road or independent voters, the better off his administration and his party would be. Do you, do you think that might be, do you think within the last few years that's sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy where like you, like you sort of um, like bring up a lot of like the, like you prioritize um, to just paraphrase, paraphrase your appearance on the hangover. It was like pri prioritizing issues of culture and race in the highest possible extreme in the hopes that they would see the error of their ways. But like, when you're elevating like the more extreme parts of that base, it sort of makes them into a bigger deal. Would you say that? Yes, I do think that, ha I, I, I think that happened. I, I think Obama's strategy backfired. Um, and, you know, it helped him in 2012, uh, but really he wasn't in 2012, he, he was able to exploit the weaknesses of his opponent and, and effectively convince um, a lot of um, uh, swing voters that Mitt Romney was at, out of touch, you know, the millionaire who just didn't really have anything to say to them, to their experience. Um, but then on the congressional side, it clearly, it clearly backfired on him. He, you know, he, by the end of his term, the Democratic Party had been demolished in the Congress. It had been demolished in the states. And he ended up uh, turning over the White House to Donald Trump, who, who was the embodiment of the national populist spirit and uh, had come to the fame uh, in, in 2011 uh, by spreading the baseless conspiracy theory that Obama had not been born in the country, something that yeah. Obama played into, you know, uh, he, yeah. he made a, he made a, um, a, a point of revealing his birth certificate, the long form birth certificate um, uh, uh, during a White House press conference, Robert Gibbs displayed it. Um, he went, you know, he belittled Trump at that White House correspondence dinner that year. And um, some people believe that was when Trump first started thinking of, of running for president. So I think, I think the strategy backfired. I think it continues to backfire. I mean, even some of the, not to jump ahead in the story, but a lot of the 
hot button cultural issues today, what falls under the category of so-called woke politics, does not help the Democratic Party. Uh, it does not. I mean, I mean that there, there's a new autopsy of the 2020 election by the um, Democratic group Third Way, which came out this week uh, that we record this podcast. And uh, they say that uh, Democrats were truly harmed uh, a, by uh, association with uh, cutting the, the budgets of police departments, and two, not having an economic agenda um, of growth and empowerment, uh, especially among uh, communities of color. So um, I, I don't think you can say that the Obama strategy succeeded um, uh, in political terms. It got him a second term. It brought him an eight-year presidency, but I think the cost to the country as a whole was, was very high. Yeah, and like you mentioned that like you were there, you saw Trump's reaction to like the press secretary yeah. Tibbs, um, like announcing Obama's birth certificate. Like you know how that may have affected him. Well, I, he would, you know, I, the way I tell the story was um, this was when he was flirting with the idea of running for president in 2012. And uh, he went to New Hampshire and flew the helicopter up to New Hampshire and uh, I was there um, with uh, just a huge number of reporters. And um, then we followed him to a diner uh, in New Hampshire. He goes into the back room of the diner to meet with people, I don't know who. Uh, and so the assembled press were kind of in, the, in this holding area in the restaurant and there are these big TVs which are showing MSNBC. And uh, so we can watch the Gibbs show the the birth certificate. Now, Trump hasn't seen this. He's been in the room. So he comes out of the room and everybody in the press goes, hey, they just showed the birth certificate. And I just remember, because this was, you know, I, I was pretty close to Trump physically throughout the day. Uh, I just remember watching him and his eyes and you could almost see the wheels in his brain turning. And he, and he, his first comment was, they only did it because of me. And he took credit once again. Trump takes credit for everything, you know. So and he's able to spin something that you would think would be a rebuke into somehow a triumph. Yeah. Um, and I just remember coming away from from that as saying, um, you know, he's he's a comic figure in many ways, but he's also extremely shrewd in others. Yeah, and it's like the whole adage of any publicity is good publicity, and maybe. That's right. Maybe that's how he became president in the first place. I believe that played a large part of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's this one quote that you mentioned in The Hangover, which was that that aspect of populism, which can easily devolve into conspiracy theory, is something that Trump knows very well and is more than happy with using to what he perceives as his advantage. Um, that's right. I don't know if I talked about this in the, in the interview, but for me, one of the most important quotes to understanding Donald Trump comes from a 2000 uh, interview. So an interview from the year 2000 in the New York Times where um, the New York Times chief political correspondent at the time, Adam McGourney, went to Trump Tower to interview uh, President Trump, who at that time was contemplating, indeed he did run for the nomination of the reform party ticket, Ross Perot's uh, party. Um, which had a brief life in the 1990s and into the early part of the 2000s. And in the interview, um, McGurney said to Trump, he said, well, what makes you think you can win? And Trump pointed to a magazine, which was on his desk and said, well, the poll in this magazine says that I'm the number one choice. 
of the voters. And the magazine was the National Enquirer. And Nagorny kind of scoffed. He said, what do you, it's the National Enquirer poll. That doesn't mean anything. And Trump's political advisor, Roger Stone, who was also in the interview, piped in and he said, no, you don't understand. The National Enquirer readers, that's Donald Trump's base. And I've always thought that shows that Trump understands that he appeals to a segment of the population. I'm talking the base of the base of the Trump vote is a segment of the population doesn't believe what they read in the newspapers, doesn't believe what they see on TV. For them, the real news is the tabloids. It is a national choir. They're susceptible to conspiracy theories. They think the whole world is run by a shadowy elite behind the scenes. And they look at Trump as this outside force who somehow understands the, the game and will be able to um, uh, basically uh, fight and defeat these, these kind of forces of darkness. And that's been the case. It was apparent in that National Enquirer poll. And it's apparent today to the people who still thrill the most to, to what Donald Trump has to say. And he understands that. Now, part of it might be he also is one of those people himself. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much like rational calculation is happening here. He believes all these conspiracy theories. Uh, why not? You know, he believes in basically everything. Uh, and if, if it's shown to be wrong or whatever, he'll just say, OK, well, I, I don't believe it anymore. You know, yes, it's entirely possible that he's deluded himself into thinking that the election was stolen. Um, I, I believe he's absolutely convinced of it. Yeah, absolutely convinced of it. And because, you know, psychologically, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't want to open up a can of worms here, but psychologically, he clearly always searches for the for. Um, now, we do this, you know, there's conf confirmation bias is something to which we are all susceptible, but he needs information that validates his, his uh, self-conception. And so when the people tell him, oh yeah, of course the election was stolen because some people with um, control of satellites or radio waves in Italy uh, manipulated uh, voting machines in Arizona and Georgia, he's like, oh yeah, 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 maybe you're right, maybe you're right. Um, so that's, that's, he's, he's not, one reason he is so uh, good at appealing to his voters is that he's, he's, he's one of them. Yeah, unfortunately. And like, for example, I do think um, a large part of bir birthism was based on like racial bias against Obama, but I guess that is another um, can of worms. So um on your guest appearance in The Hangover, you do identify yourself as a social conservative. But what I found interesting is that like you are using it um, to like say that like you're not against social conservatism, but there is this type of populist conservatism that can be construed as social conservatism. And it's the sort of like sensationalist like talk me like um, talk media radio host stuff where like they like go on and on against like radical Islam and like birtherism and like that type of conservatism. And I think that's enraptured a lot of, um, it's enraptured a lot of the conservative base and it's enraptured a lot of problematic people in high positions. So I guess um, my question is like, how do you navigate your own social conservatism so that it doesn't get entangled with the type of 
populist conservatism that is often associated with like nimbyism and nativism. Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, you know, I am a conservative. Um, I'm probably not a typical conservative. Uh, I arrived at my conservative conservative beliefs uh, really through um, a reading of the great books in college. Um, uh, so it, perhaps I'm not even an instinctual conservative or, or you know, it, it just these are kind of conclusions I drew about the world um, uh, from reading Plato and reading Edmund Burke, reading Adam Smith and reading The Federalist. Uh, that's kind of how arrived, I arrived where I am. I should say I, I do oppose strenuously uh, radical Islam. In fact, kind of the key event in um, solidifying my nascent conservatism was the attack on New York and Washington on September 11th, 2001. I was in New York on that day. I was a resident advisor at Columbia University. So I was a junior in college. I was supervising first years. We lived on the 13th floor of uh, John Jay dorm. And so I watched uh, the towers fall uh, with my own eyes. So that I will never forget that day. And I, I am quite honest in uh, when I say that that day shaped my views um, on, on, on national security and, and um, geopolitics. Probably the same way that, you know, I grew up, I'm, I'm from a, the generation um, that, uh, you know, I was kind of coming of age uh, at, at the end of the Cold War. So I have, I remember watching um, uh, Chanmen Square happen um, uh, on TV. Uh, I was, I think I was watching the Peter Jennings newscast. I remember watching the fall, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, the collapse of communism. The remember, I literally, I remember where I was when I heard that the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu had been murdered, killed by his uh, own people in a revolt on Christmas. Um, and I was in the back of the car listening to the local news station here, WTOP. Um, so I, there's no question that, that kind of the end of the Reagan presidency, the fall of communism, America's triumph in Desert Storm, which I remember well, all that shaped kind of my worldview. Um, but I was not really a conservative until I went to college, uh, read these texts, lived through 9-11. So that's kind of a backstory. Uh, <laughs> um, and I consider myself uh, very sympathetic to populism in many ways. Uh, I don't believe our, our elites uh, have really done a good job. Um, I, I do believe many institutions have been uh, corrupted by uh, the liberal ethos. Uh, but I, 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 where I differ from a lot of conservatives is I don't think the cause is lost. I don't think I don't think our situation is so desperate that we have to turn to uh, a strongman figure. Um, I, I don't think that our cause is so um, bereft that we have to take up arms um, as, as uh, a, a disturbingly sizable minority of, of Republicans and uh, seem to think that we do. Um, so I'm less apocalyptic. I've never been apocalyptic or catastrophic in my thinking. Uh, I, maybe that's kind of the, the rationalist bent in my thinking. I've, I've always been um, a, a rationalist in many ways, an empiricist. Um, uh, so 
so I've avoided that temptation. But it's a place where many populists and many conservatives have gone. And um, that I think explains kind of the apocalyptic tenor of our politics today. The idea that every single election is the hinge point for the future of Western civilization. I don't buy that. I don't believe that liberals or Democrats are somehow evil or, uh, you know, there are, there are countrymen, there are friends, our neighbors, they might disagree. We need to have reason to debate. Um, so this is where I kind of, uh, part ways with a lot of conservatives and, and as for the conspiracy theories, I just don't, I've never believed them. I, when I was young, uh, this is even before, you know, high school, it was during high school. I had a, you know, I had a, a fad where I was, um, you know, some people have fads where they get involved in, I don't know, like, you know, comic books or sci-fi or whatever, a band or something. But I had a fad where I was obsessed with Carl Sagan, uh, the, the late astronomer and uh, popularizer of science. I read all of Carl Sagan's books. And one book that affected me and still continues to affect me is called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And it's a, just, a, just a devastating takedown of a paranoid thought and uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theories and really um, using kind of empiricism, the scientific method, rational, rationalism to, to think through um, some of the claims that you see in the media uh, or in the social, and especially today, this is before social media, but they're everywhere now on social media. And that's, that's kind of always guided my thinking and, and I think inoculated me to, to some of the craziness, that's some of the dangerous craziness um, that's apparent on the, on the right. And which by the way, is not, you know, it's not unique to the right. It's also on the left. And one, one of the things that I believe put the Republican party in power uh, with the, in the Reagan years um, was the extremism of the left, uh, the, the violence of the radical left in the 1960s and 1970s. And so people on the right need to be aware that if they go down the similar path, they will continue to be rejected by the public. Um, yeah, the whole thing about if they go down a similar path, they will continue to be rejected by the public. So I guess um, there were there were these polls that I that I got from one of the newsletters from the Dispatch that I was subscribed to. There was um there was an Ipsos Reuters poll that mentioned that. Okay, this was a poll conducted last month, which said that 56% of Republicans believe the election was rigged or the result or the result of illegal voting. And 53% think Donald Trump is the actual president, not Joe Biden. And obviously, um, those are disconcerting numbers. And those are like the results of Trump's populist conservatism. Do you think, do you think, do you see those numbers going substantially down in the near future? Uh, a belief like that strikes me as pretty sticky. Um, I, you know, I, I, Democrats can, I don't know the exact number, but I mean, Democrats continue to believe that the 2000 election was stolen um, from Al Gore um, and that George W. Bush was not, an, not a legitimate president. Um, so I wouldn't, I would think that these numbers would persist. And also the way the question is phrased is a little bit, you know, um, uh, nebulous, like a lot of like a lot of polls, because you know some conservatives will tell you they say, well, when we say rigged, we mean that you know social media suppressed the the 
revelations and about Hunter Biden toward the end of the election that the New York Post reported. Or, you know, when we say it was rigged, we're talking about the um, liberalization of voting laws um, as a response to the pandemic, which according to these conservatives, I actually disagree completely with them on this, but they believe that these laws uh, helped um, Joe Biden or voter fraud. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's hard to disentangle um, what they mean when they say rigged. Uh, and it's an ambiguity, of course, on which the conservative media and, and Trump uh, thrive. They, they love that ambiguity. And, you know, people believe crazy things. I, I, there was another poll um, recently that the New York Times made a, a big deal about, which said that, you know, 15% of Americans believe with some of the tenets of the uh, QAnon conspiracy theory. I did some comparisons at Chapman University here in the States does a study of um, uh, basically American belief in the paranormal. What I found is that uh, 15% believe in Q, 21% of Americans believe in Bigfoot and 57% of Americans believe in Atlantis, the lost continent of Atlantis. So people believe not crazy things. The, the question is what will come of it? And th this is what, this is where I uh, do um, have great concerns. Um, a few things flow from the belief that somehow the electoral system is hopelessly corrupt and um, the election was stolen and such. One is that um, you, the most extreme, you will resort to violence, which is what happened on January 6th. And that cannot be tolerated. Another, another manifestation is you just won't vote. And so it, in a way, it's extremely self-defeating for Republicans to perpetuate this myth. And that's, that's exactly what we saw in these uh, special elections in Georgia that I mentioned. Um, you know, Donald Trump went to war with the Republican um, uh, officials in Georgia who would not overturn the results uh, of, the, of the election in their state for good reason, because it wasn't stolen. And the consequence was Trump's support kind of just said, well, why, why would we vote for Republicans uh, like Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue when the whole thing is gonna be rigged anyway? And as a result uh, of the depressed turnout, uh, the Democrats picked up those, both of those seats and took control of the United States Senate. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a workable strategy. Um, and then, you know, the third thing is bad policy can come of it. Um, I don't, I think a lot of these very controversial election bills that are being passed at the state level, I, I think we have to go by, you know, um, look at them uh, point by point to see, to see where they go wrong or where they're actually reasonable. Um, but it's an incredible amount of just uh, uh, kind of a opportunity cost to focus all of your attention on the election issue when there are much broader I think uh, more important issues that um, that deserve uh, attention. Okay, but um, I think you could make that argument. But do you think that um, for the second impeachment, he should like that Trump should have been impeached and convicted? Oh yes, yeah. No, I, I mean I wrote on the day of January sixth that he needed to be impeached and convicted. Uh, when the House did impeach him, I wrote uh, on National Review online that they the Senate needed to try him immediately uh, so that they could um, force the issue where they could ban him from uh, running for future office. Uh, I think what happened on January 6th was um, 
unprecedented and uh, extremely disturbing. It can't be allowed to happen again. Um, it, we've never had uh, a president, a sitting president, try to reverse the result of an election. Um, that's just never happened before. Uh, it's, it, um, and and it's, it did it did damage our democracy. There's no question about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I agree. And I guess I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked Ramesh Panuro the other day. Um, I want you to imagine a hypothetical. Let's say that um, hypothetically Republicans decided to like pull their full force into impeaching and convicting Trump and basically rejecting his lies about the election. Do you think that like as res as a result, they would have lost the support of their voters and then consequently lost power. Uh, well, we we really don't wouldn't have known by this point. Um, they clearly, you know, they did. They decided not to do it because um, they didn't want to take that risk. I also believe Liz Cheney uh, when she says that many of them may have been frightened of their own supporters. This is something that George Will recently said that it's a unique situation where the party leadership is afraid of its own voters. Um, there's also, you know, um, there's also a question of, do you really want the, these voters? <laughs> you know, I mean, um, if you're going to become a party of overturning elections, I mean, I, I personally don't support that. I don't want, I wouldn't want to be part of that. Um, so, uh, right now the Republican party is in a very confused place. It doesn't, it, it believes that, um, over time, um, uh, the party will move, move on from Donald Trump. Uh, there's a widespread belief among Republican elites. Um, I can tell you that Trump, they believe Trump won't run again in 2024. They certainly hope he won't run again. Um, I don't know if you can take that uh, risk. Um, because meanwhile, Trump very much wants to exert some control over, over the Republican Party. Um, and he remains a very popular figure uh, among Republicans. But it's also very hard to tell um, because just how popular he is, because, you know, it, People might say, oh, I'd vote for Trump right now. And, you know, if it was the 2024 primary, it's three years away. A lot of these polls are, at this point in the cycle are just name ID. Clearly, Donald Trump has the best name ID of anyone in American politics. Um, uh, there's the question of who's really paying attention to Trump now that he's been deplatformed from social media, you know. I know Trump clearly is annoyed that more people aren't paying attention to him. That's why he shut down his blog the other week um, because he was kind of, he became embarrassed that people weren't reading it. Um, these, these statements that he issues sometimes several times a day. Um, uh, so are people really paying attention to him? I've noticed like it, in online engagement with Trump is, is way down. So I, the test of the, the test of this theory uh, that the GOP elite has, that Trump will fade away, um, will come in two parts. The first part will come when and if Trump resumes the Make America Great Again rallies. The tent pole rally was a huge 
um, uh, force multiplier for Trump. Um, not only did it show uh, his ability to pull in crowds, uh, it became a media event. Many stations in 2016, not just Fox, but CNN and MSNBC would cover the rally in its entirety. Uh, and then there were all the social interactions and um, like networking possibilities that came with, uh, with the fans attending the rally. So far, Trump has said he's going to resume the rallies. He hasn't yet. Uh, if he does, how many people show up? Uh, will television cover it? Uh, will, uh, how will how will social media deal with video uh, and photo uh, that that's taken on iPhones at the rallies, right? Because they have, you know, Twitter tries to basically take down any mention of Trump. Anytime he tries to speak, will, the, will that apply to video taken at the Trump rally? I don't know. Um, what does he, of course, what does he say? Does he whip the crowd into a fury over the stolen election? Uh, what does that mean? Uh, is he going to, does he, you know, or does he kind of give the speech that he gave recently to the North Carolina GOP, which was, you know, had some pot shots at the election, but really it was more kind of a, just an indictment of the Biden administration. So that's one test. What happens with the rallies? And the second test is these primaries that are coming up. Uh, the most notable will be Liz Cheney's primary in Wyoming. She is clearly the most prominent critic of Donald Trump within the Republican Party. She lost her leadership position because of this criticism. Um, will she lose the Republican nomination um, for her House seat? We don't know. And um, there's the potential that she could actually win the nomination if a lot of the anti-Cheney vote is split in several ways. And then there's the Senate primaries. We have um, five GOP senators retiring ahead of 2022. And Trump has decided to be a figure in trying to select the nominees. Uh, will his chosen candidates win uh, the primary? Uh, and B, will they win the seat? Um, we just don't know. And so uh, but, oh, I think the jury is still out on, 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 the, on the party's connection to, um, to Donald Trump. I'd also, I'd also say this, it's a very weird, the, the first year of, an, of a democratic administration is often very weird because um, there's no, you know, no real spokesman for the opposition. Something similar happened in 2009 when, when Republicans were actually in a far worse position than they are now. Um, there was a great debate about who's the leader of the GOP and the Obama administration kind of made, made the narrative that Rush Limbaugh was the, uh, the leader of the GOP. You know. um, now Trump, of course, he's a former United States president. He was an ally of Limbaugh's. I mean, he's similar to Limbaugh in a lot of ways. Um, he has, you know, so he's, he's more, even higher, more high profile than Limbaugh was. But it's kind of the same thing where you're out of power. And so you kind of turn to um, a figure who's not really an elected official as kind of the de facto leader. Um, uh, how, will that change if, say, Republicans have a very good year next year and all of a sudden there's a speaker? Kevin McCarthy and leader Mitch McConnell. Will they take some of the attention from Trump? Um, we just don't know.
Yeah, we just don't know. All right, so I guess um, before we wrap this up, my last question is just, um, do you listen to political podcasts? Uh, sometimes. Uh, I, I can't say I'm a regular uh, listener, um, but uh, I do sometimes listen to the Commentary Magazine podcast, uh, which I'm, I appear on from time to time. I'm a columnist for Commentary. So I like hearing what my boss, John Podhortz, has to say, and as well as the other commentary folks. Uh, I listen to um, the Conversations of Bill Crystal podcast. Uh, I think Bill Crystal does a good job interviewing a wide variety of, of people. And then uh, to get kind of a perspective that I don't always agree with, but I think is interesting, is I, I do tend to listen to um, Victor Davis Hanson's podcast. He's the, the author of The Case for Trump. Um, a very populist conservative, uh, but Victor's also a military historian and a classicist, and so he has such a broad uh, frame of, of reference that it's interesting to hear where that side of the debate uh, is coming from. So I guess I li those are the ones I, I listen to, but um, otherwise not much of a podcast guy. All right, um, Matt Continetti, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. This has been MIR Meets. Thank you for listening. And if you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.